This is Passing Judgment, a podcast about the law and how it affects you. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson. Think of me as your personal law professor as we navigate the big legal questions of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Passing Judgment. Today, I am absolutely thrilled to say that we are joined by Dahlia Lithwick. She is the senior legal correspondent at Slate and the host of the podcast Amicus. Dahlia won a 2013 National Magazine Award for her columns on the Affordable Care Act. She's been inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and she is, of course, author of the fantastic book, Lady Justice. It is now out in paperback. Lady Justice won an LA Times Book Prize in Current Interest. It's a New York Times bestseller. In Lady Justice, Dahlia profiles eight female attorneys and judges who are the driving forces behind the Trump resistance. They are truly heroines of our era. So with that, here is my conversation with Dahlia. Dahlia, it's such a pleasure to be able to talk to you about the book again. I had the opportunity to interview you live about the book when it first came out in paperback. And we spoke in Los Angeles at Writer's Block. And I want to ask you something we've talked about a little bit, which is one of the themes of the book is the relationship that women have with the law. And I'd love for you to talk a bit about why do you think it is that women in particular have this special connection with the law? So first of all, thank you for having me. I love, I always love being in conversation with you. And I always feel like we could finish each other's sentences, which is like good and bad. But, you know, if we start finishing each other's sentences, so be it. You know, I think like when we spoke, which was a year ago, we we hoped that there was a special relationship between women and the law. But, you know, the book had a little bit sketched that out. And and some of that was aspirational, right? But then the midterms happened. Then every single one of the seven state ballot initiatives that put abortion to the vote in the states ended up supporting reproductive rights. Women organized not just those efforts, I mean, uh, with amazing male allies, but women deeply involved themselves in gun safety. Women deeply involved themselves in climate change. And so I guess my feeling is, in a sense, the book was the hope and a little bit of proof of concept based on the Trump years. But the intervening year, when you saw women, particularly women of color, young folks, you know, um, LGBTQ folks, essentially picking up what I felt was the main theme of the book, which is the law is a thing that can affect great change. And we have been asleep at the switch. And so what I feel like is not just that that central thesis of the book, which is if you are any kind of vulnerable community, 
you never believed that the law was perfect and magic and at the end of the moral arc because the law was always something that you had to fight for a place at the table. You had to fight to get equal rights and equal dignity. And I think a lot of communities that aren't wealthy white male landowners and for a long time slaveholders knew that the law could turn on you in a dime. And so when it did, after Dobbs for women, women, A, I mean, I think they were shocked, but they mobilized. And so I guess this is a long way of answering the kind of basic upshot of your question, which is, if you came to the law because of some horrific injustice, you're both surprised and not surprised, but you have the building blocks for fixing it. And I think that that split screen between thinking that the law is the thing that makes us perfect and just and dignified and equal, and that the law is also the thing that can put women in jail for a miscarriage is a split screen that women live in their bones. So like, that's the thesis. And I think that what we have seen is a kind of natural experiment in how that plays out when women get engaged. And as you said, the law gives us equality. It can take away equality. It can take away rights. And you just mentioned something. You said we were asleep and now we're engaging. Do you think it was Dobbs? It seems to me that your book would indicate, no, it's not Dobbs. It's a lot of things. It's the Trump years. It's the recognition that we need to use the law, as you said, as a tool for change. What do you think caused the sleepiness? Did we just get comfortable that things can't roll back? I think that there, I mean, let's be super clear who the we is, right, Jessica? Because the sleepiness was not Leonard Leo. It was not the Federalist Society. It was not Mitch McConnell. Uh, The people who realized for decades that they could weaponize and operationalize the potential of the American legal system to thwart majority rule, to thwart uh, states' rights, to thwart, you know, elections themselves, that was happening. So only some of us were asleep. And and unfortunately, a lot of the some of us that were asleep were on the progressive side. And I think you're exactly right. I think part of it was we were misreading the data coming out of the Supreme Court for years, right? We lose on Shelby County. We lose on Citizens United. We lose on Hobby Lobby. We lose again and again and again. And we say to ourselves, oh, but we're winning because we got Obergefell, right? We're winning because we would get one or two wins a year. And so you lose on Heller and you don't blink and you lose on environmental cases and you don't blink. And then suddenly you lose on Dobbs and you're like, wait, what? We're losing now? I mean, we've been losing since, I would say, since Richard Nixon took control of the court in the late 1960s and packed it with people who uh, uh, were in many, many ways. I mean, at the time, we look now and we're like, oh, my God, that was the good old days. Those folks were practically liberal. But the dismantling of the Warren Court and the values of the Warren Court has been going on for my entire lifetime. But we missed it because we told ourselves either, you know, oh, RBG is on the court, therefore the court is fair and we're in love with her, or that, you know, it's okay if you lose and lose and lose and lose as long as you have a hero like Anthony Kennedy as the swing justice, except he was the one who was delivering all these losses. So I think a couple things happened. One, as you say, Trump, that leads immediately to the Women's March. Two, I think a set of legal actions in the Trump era, whether it was, you know, the Muslim ban, family separation, you know, things that looked 
different and horrifying and women organizing around that. And that was the kind of gravamen of the book. And then I think it was January 6th and um, threats to actual democracy. And as you say, then there's Dobbs, which for many, 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 many of us who thought this could never happen, even when it had already happened on the shadow docket in SB8, the Texas vigilante case suddenly looked around and said, this thing that we thought was this immutable fortress that we called the law and we called progress and we'll never go backwards, it's all just made of cotton candy. And then I think we saw what I describe in the book, and I think you and I both agree, was just millions of people saying, I guess I better put some skin in the game. And whether they did that by registering voters in the midterm, whether they did that, you know, in Ohio by getting abortion onto the ballot, whether they did that by like protesting outside the statehouse in Tennessee for new gun laws, I think that there is a connection in people's minds now between the way they live their lives and the courts and the Supreme Court and voting. And I don't think we connected those dots before. I think you're absolutely brilliant to point out that the baseline we use for success for the Supreme Court was so skewed and bizarre for so many decades. As long as we get, then we can ignore, as you said, Citizens United, Shelby County, and all of the ways in which the promise of Roe and Casey was just whittled away, death by a thousand paper cuts. And I want to then talk about the book and how women have, as you said, engaged and said, we have skin in the game, and that this happened before Dobbs. And Lady Justice has won awards as a New York Times bestseller for reasons that I think will become clear to anybody who has read the book, has yet to read the book, and is about to pick it up. But I want to talk about how it's structured, the bookends, where we start with Sally Yates in the beginning, and we end with Stacey Abrams, in part because you just mentioned the importance of voting and mobilizing. And you've said the word Shelby County. I've said the word Shelby County. And I'm hoping that you can walk us through why did you decide that they would be the bookends? Sally Yates, of course, being the former deputy attorney general, fired because she wouldn't enforce the first Trump travel ban. Uh, and then Stacey Abrams, the former Georgia state representative, gubernatorial candidate, and voting rights activist. So one thing I like to say, Jessica, and I probably even said it to you, is that every single person that I featured in Lady Justice is an avatar for hundreds, if not thousands of others. And these were not the nine best lawyers or the most important lawyers or even the most interesting cases. They were people who, in one way or another, was emblematic of... Someone who looked around, saw a need for leadership in the law, and just jumped into the fray. Didn't workshop it, didn't, you know, have 50 meetings about it, didn't look around for someone better to do it, just said, I guess, I guess I'm the adult now. And so it could have been any number of people. And my original table of contents for the book was seven pages, right? Because it could still be any number of people. And that was one of the themes I really wanted to pull up. Uh, was that we're all, every one of us is Sally Yates and Stacey Abrams. We just maybe don't know it yet. But I think the reason, and you're clever to like lift it up, it, that, that we start with Sally Yates and end with Stacey Abrams in some sense is, first of all, they're both Georgia legends, right? And there's something powerful about having one who is the daughter and granddaughter and great granddaughter of 
lawyers and judges who is, um, you know, white and very, very, very much the recipient of all the privileges that came with that. And, you know, to end with Stacey Abrams, who everything, you know, in order to get into the legal system, in order to get into law school, in order to get into situations of power was a fight. You know, every door was closed. And so I think that to have them in conversation in some sense as a way of mapping out, we still, even in 2022, 23, uh, have such disparities, right, in access to the system seemed like an important point to make. I guess the other thing, and this is where you opened, is because when I first started Lady Justice, I thought I was kind of writing a bunch of law and order scripts, right? I mean, just interesting, cool trials. And people love trials, and I love trials. And so, you know, the early chapters are litigation, because we all watch Law and Order, and it's super exciting, and we like heroes, and we like, you know, villains. And then halfway through the book, and there's this deep inflection point, it's Vanita Gupta's chapter on organizing. And this is a person who did trial after trial after trial. You know, I could have done Vanita as as an avatar for a trial attorney for what she did in Tulia, Texas. But what I wanted was to make the pivot from winning trials to winning democracy. And that has to happen through organizing and through voting. And that is, of course, what Stacey Abrams does. I mean, she's tangentially involved in a lot of voter suppression work or, or, or work opposing voter suppression and democracy distortion. But what she's really involved in is getting out the vote, right? She's involved in the single most successful, which has now become a template for states all around the country, conversation about why are we letting people not come to the table? They have to be in the fight and giving up on entire states or entire classes of of voters, whether they're workers or people of color or young people is just not an option. And what Stacey Abrams built in Georgia is buildable, scalable, and remarkable. And so what I think I realized halfway through the book is you can win all the lawsuits in the world and you will get on MSNBC a whole lot, but you will lose democracy. Like it's not enough to win lawsuits. You have to win democracy. And that doesn't just mean doing what Stacey Abrams does and hoping people come out in, you know, once every four years or every other year for the midterms. It means every minute of every day. It means school board races. It means your state attorney general. It means who is in your state house. It means your state's Supreme Court, all the stuff that's on the board now that we didn't think was on the board because we were just like, oh, you know, we'll just go out and vote every four years and then we'll go to Target. That's just not going to work. And I feel like Stacey Abrams needed to be the landing point of the book because otherwise the book is just a piece of history. It's just how did those two Senate seats uh, in uh, 2021 flip to Democrats? That's Stacey Abrams' story, right? That's important. But I didn't want it to be the history of (laughs) the beginning of the end. I wanted it to be a playbook for every single person, particularly in this case, woman, who are looking around saying, I cannot fathom how it is that we have vast majorities that believe in reproductive freedom, believe in sensible gun laws, believe in clean water and clean air and uh, the CDC and the controlling of preventable disease. And we're losing everything. (laughs) Like, how can that be? And the answer isn't lawsuits. It's partly lawsuits, but the answer is democracy. I love that juxtaposition of Sally Yates and Stacey Abrams and how you talk about that 
Sally Yates, essentially so many doors open for her just by virtue of who she is, who her family is. Stacey Abrams, so many doors she's forced to open. And yet they show this fantastic arc of litigation to mobilization. And as you said, winning trials to winning democracy. One thing you just mentioned, you said, I cannot fathom that that's essentially what a lot of women sat there, stood there, looked around and said, I cannot fathom. And I want to go back to one other person in the book that you feature, because I think people know her as E. Jean Carroll's attorney, E. Jean Carroll being the journalist who has successfully sued the former president of the United States for defamation. There are ongoing lawsuits in those cases, but she's featured in the book for a different reason. And I have the same sense that she looked around and said, there's no white knight. Nobody's coming to save us. I cannot fathom. And then could you tell us a little bit about what could she not fathom? What did she do? Because it's, to me, such an important, all of the women are important, but it's such an important part of the story in that nobody's coming to save you. Start the process now. Right. And and so the person we're talking about is the amazing Roberta Kaplan. And long before she did the work that I profile in the book, which is uh, the Charlottesville uh, Nazis and white supremacists lawsuit where she prevailed over uh, the organizers of the Unite the Right torchlit Nazi rally in 2017. And long before she got famous for Eugene Carroll uh, in the past year, uh, Robbie Kaplan was also the person who did the Edie Windsor suit at the U.S. Supreme Court, which opened the door uh, by taking down uh, the Defense of Marriage Act, opened the door to Obergefell shortly after. Robbie, in many ways, is the Where's Waldo of, you know, just huge impactful lawsuits. And as you said, she seems to triangulate not against getting famous or where are the cameras. She seems to triangulate against has some grave, grievous injustice been done and nobody's showing up. And that was certainly, I think, her experiencing in in taking Edie Windsor's case and uh, E. Jean Carroll's case and very much her experience in Charlottesville after 2017. And I, I have to say for folks who haven't read the book, you know this, Jessica, but when Nazis marched in Charlottesville and terrorized a synagogue, terrorized black neighborhoods, murdered uh, in cold blood Heather Heyer, who was a civil rights counter-protester who was doing nothing other than being on the streets and injured, severely injured many others. Uh, when they marched in Charlottesville and Donald Trump shortly after said, you know, good people on both sides, what are you going to do? And nobody at Donald Trump's Justice Department at that point operated by Jeff Sessions looked at this travesty as a civil rights uh, violation that should be investigated by the Justice Department. Robbie looked around and she said, who do I know in Charlottesville? Oh, wait, Dahlia Lithwick lives there, called me and said, who do I sue? How am I going to? And, you know, called Karen Dunn famously, who's another one of these just landmark powerhouse litigators who had done the uh ping pong, the Comet Pizza um, lawsuit. And she called Karen and said, you want to sue some Nazis with me? Flew down to Charlottesville within a couple of days, had amassed a bunch of potential plaintiffs, and then brought what was one of the most successful civil rights lawsuits in which the organizers of the Unite the Right rally uh, were brought up uh, in a 
jury trial uh, under a provision of the KKK Act, which was a piece of legislation that nobody had used much since Reconstruction, and won huge, you know, multi-million dollar judgment against them uh, before a jury. And I think all of that as background to say Robbie just waited for the Justice Department to do something, and they didn't. She waited for somebody to bring a huge federal lawsuit, and they didn't. And then she said, I think I'm going to find some plaintiffs. And then she looked around and she found an operative statute. And then she still waited. And then she said, I guess I'm doing this now by myself. And when all that was vindicated in a in a trial court, to be sure, many years later, because it was a hell of a journey, I think to me, it is emblematic of exactly the thing you're saying, which is, if there's one enduring lesson of this moment, it's that waiting for an adult to show up and save you is folly (laughs) because there's just not a ton of adults and that the adults who do show up may not be the ones who have, you know, as I often say, mugs and earrings and tote bags named after them, but they might just be ordinary attorneys in the case of the book, a lot of them women who say, I guess if there's no grown up, I'm the grown up and they do it. I guess it's me. And you profile a lot of them. The people that we've talked about, I think people listening to the podcast will know their names. Sally Yates, Stacey Abrams, Robbie Kaplan. But I don't want to do what everybody else did, which is erase somebody else from our discussion. And I don't want to leave the discussion of Lady Justice without discussing Polly Murray and without discussing who she is briefly and why she's erased from constitutional history and why I've heard you say she was really part of the motivating factor for you to write this book. I I am, no word of a lie, completely obsessed with Polly Murray. And we should stipulate right up front that if Polly Murray had lived to see this moment in LGBTQ history, might want to be called they instead of her, because Polly Murray from Early childhood, self-identified as somebody who was gender nonconforming, felt uh, they were, you know, a man trapped in a woman's body and could never get relief for that because there was no language for it. There was no architecture of how to think about that. So we sort of refer to Polly Murray as she, but maybe that's, you know, ahistoric and wrong. Polly Murray, for folks who are interested, I think is the single most important constitutional hero we have all forgotten. Polly Murray and 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 people should see the extraordinary documentary um, film by Betsy West and Julie Cohen called My Name is Polly Murray if they're interested. But Polly Murray essentially was desegregating lunch counters before anyone else was, refused to move to the back of the bus years before Rosa Parks. Polly Murray was half African American, partly descended from slaveholders, couldn't go in, get into University of North Carolina because the color of her skin, but then couldn't get into any of her first choice law schools because of gender. Ended up at Howard University writing a paper about, hey, just spitballing here, but what if we use the 14th Amendment to end school segregation and was mocked and derided for fanciful thinking until it became the outline for what were the papers in Brown v. Board, 
the the legal defense fund, the um, NAACP legal defense fund, ended up using the core of Pauli Murray's ideas without crediting Pauli Murray, by the way, uh, for the Brown v. Board litigation. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who similarly used 14th Amendment ideas to end gender discrimination, borrowed heavily from Pauli Murray's work years earlier, at least put Pauli Murray's name on the brief. But Pauli Murray was so far ahead of constitutional history that constitutional history has, you know, as you suggest, erased her almost completely. And the reason I'm obsessed with Polly, and by the way, I, my favorite part, there's so many amazing story parts of the Polly Murray story, including, you know, helping to found the National Organization for Women, fighting to get um, all sorts of women's rights legislation passed, writing a note to Richard Nixon saying, Dear President Nixon, I hear you're looking for the first woman justice. Let me just nominate me. Um, just an extraordinary person who then leaves the law and is the first woman ordained in the Episcopal Church. So quite a life, like many, many, many Netflix series could be done about Polly Murray. And I think in some sense, the reason history has forgotten Polly Murray is not white, not black, not male, not female, not an easy story to tell the way many, you know, Thurgood Marshall's story and RBG stories are, are so clear and easy to tell. But I think more importantly, because Polly Murray was one of those people who almost single-handedly, I think, clawed the present thinking about the 14th Amendment out of like the rock face of that, uh, uh, of those words, and then left everyone else to get the credit, you know, sort of moved on to the next thing and the next thing. And I use Polly Murray as a springboard for the book. And as you say, my obsession with this animating question, which is who does the work and who gets famous and who gets credit and who gets the mugs and the tote bags. And none of that is to belittle RBG. I too have the tote bags and the votive candles and the pillows. But I think that the idea that if we have enough hagiography around a couple of famous lawyers, we don't have to do the work ourselves is the thing that got us into this deep, deep hole in the first instance. And so I think I bring up Polly Murray in no small part because I wrote the book just after RBG died and everybody was crushed. But it wasn't just that RBG died and suddenly replaced by Amy Coney Barrett and the future of Roe was in question. It's that this person who we gave way disproportionate imaginative power over equality and rights and the law was gone. And we all felt like there was no one left. And what I wanted to suggest in the thesis of the book is there's lots of people left. Everyone around you is a Pauli Murray working away, not getting credit. And the fact that we all just said, I don't have to do anything as long as RBG is around, you know, to hold up the tent. That was our mistake. And I think that goes to larger questions about celebrity culture and how we do justice and, you know, how we think that, you know, Bob Mueller is going to save us and then Jack Smith is going to save us and then Adam Schiff is going to save us. Like, that's not what's going to save us. It's just not. It's never been the case that democracy is saved by like one famous guy in a white hat. And particularly, I think, for vulnerable groups and people of color and women, it's always been thousands of nameless, faceless Polly Murrays toiling in the vineyards, probably never seeing the fruit of their own action. But that's how we make change. And we know that. <laughs> so we have to just own that story as very much, in this case, a woman's story, but also own it as a story of how 
for the millions of us who are feeling powerless and lost and just choosing in some sense to give up. Polly Murray never once gave up. You know, Carol Anderson in the book exhorts readers to not give up. Anita Hill in the book says, you know, of course the law is flawed and it's unfair and it is the machinery of great violence to people of color and to women, but the alternative is chaos. So we don't give up. We just fight for it. And I think for me, I know you and I have talked about this before, the idea that the law is self-reinforcing and self-executing was always a myth. To me, that's such an important part of Lady Justice, which is don't cede your power, don't cede your responsibility. It's not just that we can, it's that we must. And I think the story that you tell is really one of we have to. And I know that we need to conclude our conversation. I also know that for a lot of my friends, colleagues, listeners, you are the voice that people turn to when they're looking at what's happening in the law right now. And we have just started a new Supreme Court term. And without getting into the nitty gritty details, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, what are some of the themes that you see? So we know that the court has taken at least two big cases dealing with the, quote, administrative state. We know that there is at least one big voting rights case. There is at least one big case dealing with the Second Amendment, gun rights. And for me, a theme of the court finally needing to tackle changes in technology and how they affect the First Amendment, by which I mean social media, social media users, social media companies, what can public officials do and not do on social media, and what can governments say and not say to social media companies. Obviously, the court hasn't agreed to hear all of the cases that it will hear this term. But if you could pull out for us just a few things that you're thinking about as we follow the term. So I want to go back to something you said when we talked about why it is that progressives misapprehended what was happening at the court for so long. You know, we're willing to say like, yeah, sure, you know, we got a body blow uh, with Citizens United, with Bush v. Gore. We got another body blow with Heller. We got another body blow with Hobby Lobby. But basically the court's like pretty liberal. When, in fact, you know, empirical study after empirical study had showed that the Roberts Court had six of the top 10 most conservative jurists in 100 years, including Anthony Kennedy, who was, I think, clocked in at, at, at 10 or 11, right? So this was never the Warren Court. And we were just like, la, 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 you know, after, after Brown v. Board and Roe, we won everything and now we'll move on to whatever it is we're thinking about. And and, and I want to be clear, we all did that. That's not other people. That's all of us, right? We were failing to say um, the sky is falling for a very, very long time before it fell. And one of the ways it did that, just to be responsive to the question, is the court is really smart about managing its docket, right? This is a purely discretionary docket. So the court is very good at only taking the cases that it wants to take 
and then deciding them in ways that allow the court to say, look at this incredibly centrist, pragmatic thing we did. And I say that by way of pulling out one of the big themes, which is it was very easy last year for a lot of corporate media folks to say, hey, in the end, the term was kind of awashed, right? Like, yes, we lost huge on affirmative action. Yes, we just completely destroyed President Biden's loan forgiveness plan. Yes, the Clean Water Act was eviscerated. But hey, the court didn't end Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, right? The court didn't sign off on the so-called independent state legislature theory that would have, for the first time in 200 years, allowed uh, state legislatures to simply ignore state courts, right? So the court didn't do two or three demonstrably insane things last term and then did five or six demonstrably insane things last term. And let's be clear, when the court says, oh, now we're experts on water pollution, we're going to change the test for the first time. Or, oh, did we mention we're also experts on uh, loan forgiveness and we've invented something called the major questions doctrine that has no roots in text or history or doctrine or concept, but we're going to use that to end uh, loan forgiveness. It's very easy to say, well, I call that pretty much a wash, right? Like, looks like the term was actually pretty moderate because it wasn't the term before when we had Dobbs. And so I just say all that by way of saying, be very careful to not be rope-a-doped by the fact that the court has 100% control of its docket. It accepts completely cuckoo banana cases and doesn't decide all of them in cuckoo banana ways. And then it allows us to normalize that. I guess that Brett Kavanaugh, the median voter on the present court, is really just a very moderate, basically liberal guy. And that is, you know, the brain wants what it wants. I get it. The heart wants what it wants. We all want to believe that we're still in the O'Connor court. But this is not the O'Connor court. It's not even close. And I think we just have this misapprehension that because we don't get Dobbs every year, the court is modulating itself. The court is picking cases, deciding cases, by the way, on the shadow docket, right, which is a whole other conversation. If you decide something at midnight in a three sentence unsigned order and it doesn't get attention doesn't mean it's not happening. So I think we have to be very mindful. And over and above all of that, we haven't even mentioned, you know, ethics scandal, ethics scandal, Dobbs leak, ethics scandal, ProPublica, Politico, Washington Post, God bless you wherever you are. You know, the fact that journalism is holding the courts just palpable disregard for its own ethics rules uh, in contempt. And so all of that stuff is happening. And I think we are so hungry to say, well, in that one case, the court didn't do away with the last vestige of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act and let Alabama create a second uh, district in which Black voters have a chance to effectuate their will. That must mean that this is a liberal court. So what I want to urge people is to be very, very careful not to play the game. And here I just cite to the amazing Professor Stephen Vladek, whose book, The Shadow Docket, really sketches out this argument that when you have a court that has a discretionary docket that only takes a tiny fistful of cases a year, 
and that has the power to say, oh, no, this was a centrist moderate decision by way of either deciding what the question is or how to frame the question or to not take a question doesn't mean that the court is telling you what it's doing and that this centrist narrative is the one of the day. So that's the first thing is I, exactly your point. A theme of the year is the court is on deck to yet again uh, take a brick bat to what's left of the administrative state. And that's all the regulatory agencies, the ABC agencies that make sure that we have clean air and clean water and don't have predatory payday lenders, right? That's one thing. And those cases are important. We have the Rahimi case, which is, I think, going to be the single most important Second Amendment case, really calling into question whether a a, a gentleman who uh, is subject to a domestic violence protective order who then uses a, a gun in multiple crimes and loses his gun under a federal statute and is uh, under the sort of theory of the case, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals says, oh, but there were no such thing as domestic violence protective orders uh, at the founding or the framing of this uh, 14th Amendment. So that law falls. Hugely consequential in applying the test from the Bruin case going forward. I'm almost certain that Mifepristone is coming back. That's the um, abortion uh, medication case that uh, again, you're going to hear the word Fifth Circuit a lot this term because we have a federal appeals court that is jamming the Supreme Court from below with just extraordinary uh, uh, decisions, sweeping, sweeping over applications of precedent in the hopes that the can pick off five to get it. And so I think the last theme that I would pull on in addition to Fifth Circuit crazy, don't believe the court's propaganda about being centrist, and there are very, very uh, consequential cases coming, including, as you said, efforts to put meat on the bones of how the court thinks about the First Amendment in a technological age. But I think the other big, big theme is not to let the court coverage so wholly bifurcate the personal stuff, the ethics stuff, the Leonard Leo, the $1.6 billion slush money that is being given to the conservative legal movement, not just to seat courts on judges on the bench, not just to capture state Supreme Court, but to suppress the vote, right? To bring radical anti-LGBTQ cases. If we can't follow the money, and understand the connection between the fact that the court is hearing a case about, you know, the wealth tax that happens to be brought by people who have bought and sold justices on the court. Don't let people tell you those stories are not intrinsically connected because they are intrinsically connected. And maybe I would just end by using the slightly sloppy, oversimplified metaphor we used last week in our curtain raiser, which is if we continue to treat Supreme Court coverage as though these are nine scientists doing objective experiments in a lab and we can just watch them bubble away and, you know, in their white coats doing these experiments and saying like, oh, it looks like that's the end of Chevron deference as though some objective neutral experiment happened as opposed to saying, who bought the scientists? Who bought the labs? Who bought the Bunsen burners and the test tubes? Is this all redounding to the benefit of the Koch brothers and uh, Harlan Crow and the people who have poured billions of dollars of their own money 
into ending the regulatory state, into polluting the environment, into making it easier for wealthy people to keep their money. Those two stories are connected. And to continue to treat them as though there's one beat, which is go to scandal beat, and like, what now? Glacier martinis? What? And another beat that is the doctrine of the court that is produced in a neutral lab according to neutral rules is going to be another reason if at the end of the term or next term, we're like, wait, what happened again? And missing the real story. The idea of these decisions coming out of a lab where scientists just perform experiments I think is so dangerous. And my students are sick of me giving them this answer, but they always say, but what's the law? What's the law? And I say, whatever five people say it is, it's not coming down from a mountain. It's whatever five people selected by a president and our president say it is. And by the same token, while that is scary, I think the some of the message of Lady Justice would be that's empowering because we have power over it. It's not etched in stone. We can do something about it. I've kept you very long, Dahlia Lithwick, senior writer from Slate, host of Amicus, and author, of course, of Lady Justice that's now out in paperback. I could talk to you for hours and hours, but that would mean that you couldn't do the other important work that you do. Thank you so much for being on Passing Judgment. Thank you for all this information. There's a reason that I have the hardcover, the paperback, and the audio version of Lady Justice. I really want to recommend that everybody listen and read it. And thank you for your time. Thank you so, so much. And I think I just want to say one sucky yuppie thing, if I might, which is, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the book the way I wrote it is that I wanted every first year law student or college junior or high school junior to fall in love with one of those characters and see themselves in one of them. And I love the fact that there are so many amazing, powerful, outspoken, truth to power women like you, you know, on television, in print, podcasting, like the world has really changed in terms of who young women see. And so I want to actually thank you for being like one of the many, 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 many Polly Murrays in the world that young women, including your students, are lucky enough to say, you know, I may not see myself in Becca Heller. I will never be a Sally Yates, but I sure as hell could be a Jessica Levinson. Like that is the path down which so many men have trod throughout life. You know, do I want to be an Adams or a Jefferson? <laughs> you know, do I want to be a Lincoln or a Washington? And I just think like until you see it, it's hard to imagine it. And so really, really like I put you in the bucket of many, many, many women who are making it possible for the women who come up behind to say, you know, I could do this too. So thank you for your work, Jessica. 